when I was applying to college in the US and that was my that was going to be my first time coming here I had a very narrow view of what America was as we hear stories growing up America is this fantastical land with a lot of lights and big buildings and beautiful townhouses right but I don't think anyone really tells you about the silence Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Today's guest is Samira Sadiq. She is a New York-based Bangladeshi journalist and a poet focusing on migration, the refugee crisis, gender and mental health. Samira began her journalism career in Dhaka, Bangladesh, covering the 2013 factory collapse, the country's ethnic and religious minorities and its LGBTQ community. Her work appears in Reuters, NPR, Al Jazeera, Quartz, The Lily, and The Dhaka Tribune, among other publications. She is the editor-in-chief of the Bangladeshi Identity Project, a media platform for the Bangladeshi diaspora. Samira, welcome to the Alien Chronicles. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be sharing my story. So you grew up in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Dhaka is a big city. It has a population of 18 million people. Mm -hmm. Could you describe to us what was it like growing up in a big city? What was your childhood like? And what was the culture at home? It was very chaotic for the good reasons. <laughs> there was a uh, there was a lot of noise, which I'm now used to. I can't live anywhere that's quiet. <laughs> and culturally growing up, I, I attended what we say back home in English medium school, which is yeah. uh, we have English medium versus Bengali medium schools. And my education was very much influenced and informed by the British education system until I moved out to go to boarding school in India, actually, for my high school. But other than that, culturally, I was always very, I was always very involved in the arts, in sports. I used to play football on our school team. And what led you to come to the U.S.? Education. I wanted to pursue my higher studies here. I first came here for college way back in 2008, the year Obama was elected, actually. And I studied here for a few years, went back and then came back here for my grad school. So it was always New York. Like, did you come to New York in 2008 and then now? Uh, far from it. I actually started in Iowa at oh, wow. Cornell College, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I felt it was important to say that I'm, I'm very much a city and a noisy place kind of a girl. So it was a very interesting experience being in Iowa because it was very quiet. It was a very small town and our college campus um, also, our student population was also quite small. It's a small liberal arts college and... And um, I studied sociology there and also learned how to live in silence. <laughs> in Iowa, like what was the biggest cultural shock that you had? Well, like coming from, again, Dhaka, a big city. And then what, what were some of the differences that you observed? Wow, so many. <laughs> I, I think when I when I was applying to college in the U.S. and that was, was going to be my first time coming here, I had a very very narrow view of what America was. Um, and, you know, as we as we hear stories growing up back in South Asia overall, if I may say, definitely in Bangladesh, as we hear stories, America is this fantastical land with a lot of lights and big buildings and beautiful townhouses, right? But I don't think anyone really tells you about the silence. And coming here, that was just like acquainting myself with how 
how at times difficult it was to access a lot of facilities was was definitely a cultural shock because we were in a village in Iowa. And so it was very difficult to get to the closest city without paying $90 for a one-way cab ride. So you needed to have a car. So little things like that, I didn't factor any of that in when I was applying to college, just because for me as that just didn't exist in America. In America, everything was super easy and accessible. <laughs> and in Iowa, were you stereotyped in any way? Because I am assuming um, the place where you were staying or living is probably not that diverse. Absolutely not. But our college campus actually really was. Uh, we had a we had a really high percentage of international students, and the college that I went to has a very focus, a very big focus on social justice and diversity in general. I wouldn't say I was stereotyped on campus, but definitely not something I felt at any point. But outside of campus, not stereotyped as much as generalized. Uh, you know, just to be Indian or. Actually, a lot of people would mistake me to be a Hispanic at times as well. Did it bother you that people were generalizing you in different like? Absolutely. It's something that's still very much a part of my life. It's something that's been a part of my life uh, growing up as, you know, as soon as I left home and I left home when I was 16 because I went to, I went to boarding school for high school. So that generalization that put under this, under an umbrella term, which in India is used as, has has been a very big defining factor in my life. It's actually why we, uh, along with uh, two of my friends, we started the Bangladeshi Identity Project, which I'd love to talk about more. Absolutely, yeah. It was actually two of my, well, now friends slash colleagues, uh, but uh, Tarun and Frazana, who conceptualized having this blog for the Bangladeshi diaspora around the world. And they started the project sometime last year. And they reached out to me in December last year, actually, after we both ended up publishing the same story or, or a story on the same topic pretty much within a week. Uh, so that was, a, that was a very interesting coming together <laughs> of our journeys. And they're all from different backgrounds. But when they approached me, I was, I was totally on board. And we started the project very specifically to address the needs and and also feature the Bangladeshi diaspora because we we had often felt that we either get sort of shoved under the same identity, same Indian identity or or South Asian in general. And in a lot of uh, South Asian narratives, we felt that we weren't able to share a lot of our stories as well, which is why we felt that this platform could be that voice and We've honestly been surprised with the response we've gotten from the Bangladeshi community. So in what ways are you using this platform to change that generalization? Can you give us an example of how you've done that so far? Yeah, absolutely. So I forget the name uh, name of the main character here, but a couple of decades ago, a Bangladeshi immigrant, he'd migrated here a couple, de- couple or so decades ago. And he, in the aftermath of 9-11, he was, he was attacked by what today we would call white supremacist, I suppose. And it happened in the state of Texas. And he fought, uh, he survived the attack. He was shot in the eye. And he fought, he fought to make sure that the person who attacked him, who was arrested and on death row, doesn't get the death sentence. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And there is a, there's a very, uh, there's a very nice book about it. Um, an author even covered it. And this year, right after we launched, actually, we found out that someone was making a movie about it. And the character is in it. There's no Bangladeshi on the cast. They've cast, I believe, 
Kumal Nanjiani, who's not of Bangladesh descent. And, you know, as much as we absolutely celebrate and respect the diversity there is in, in, in Hollywood now more than ever before, we would really like to be accurately represented, right? You can be right, but you may still miss the accuracy. And that's what, as the Bangladeshi Identity Project, we're aiming to promote about our identity. That's such an inspiring story. So, Samira, what are some of the traditions that you brought along that you carry on to this day, like from Bangladesh? Sure, definitely how to cook dal. (laughs) Um, Can you explain to our listeners what dal is? uh, It's lentil soup. (laughs) That definitely was like exciting to figure out how to explain that to people because at first it was just the most normal thing to me, (laughs) you know, dal. Um, But yeah, lentil soup. And, and we eat like at least in Pakistan, we eat it with rice. Yes, that's uh, with exactly white how we rice. Do it. Yes. So it's like it. It is. You're right. You're absolutely right. The way we would describe it is soup, but we treat it as like curry. So we yeah. would eat it with rice, exactly. right? Is that is that how it's eaten in Bangladesh as well? Yes, with a lot of ghee and rice. Yeah, at least that's my favorite kind. <laughs> so moving on to your career and what you're doing right now. You write for NPR, Reuters, but you started your career in Bangladesh, right? In what ways is media different there versus in the US? What are some of the similarities, some of the differences that you've observed? I think the biggest is that the media in Bangladesh is still trying to adjust or to develop the digital audience base. It's still very print focused which is a value I didn't realize until I came here. And I realized that there is, there's a very big divide between, between print and digital here in terms of print tends to take a bit more time at times, a bit more of a credibility as a journalist, especially if you're a freelance journalist. In Bangladesh, it's more digital works as a function of print. You know, whatever is in print will go on digital and very few stories, most stories will exist in both spheres which is not what I what I see here. There's a lot of, most of my stories here are on digital platforms. They're not in print. So I definitely think that there's a very big divide in terms of the demand and the hunger for it and also the access for it, right? As a, as a country, we've been so used to having print newspaper for so long, for four decades now, at least since our independence, that it's it's a matter of habit. And as they say, news is such a big matter of habit, right? You You always, it's so difficult to change a reader's publication that they're used to reading. So there's definitely some challenges in tapping into that in Bangladesh, but I also know that there are organizations who are trying to make it work. And in terms of women being part of journalism, is that common in Bangladesh? Is it changing? Or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Yes, it's very common in Bangladesh. And there is definitely a lot of women out there doing very hard-hitting stories whether it's local reporting or even just based in Bangladesh. And press freedom has been an issue in Bangladesh, but thankfully the women are out there doing stories. I would say in terms of leadership roles, there aren't as many as I would hope to see someday. But in terms of reporting and going out and getting the story done, there's a lot of women doing that. And I'd also like to point out, I think and in my experience as a woman, whenever I've tried to join a newsroom, I, I often got the offer to cover culture and cover entertainment. And while, you know, I absolutely respect and value that beat, it's just not my interest. But I've definitely experienced trying to be shoved into shoved into that category. And I know that there's an impression that exists that, oh, as a woman, that's just something 
that you like covering, I absolutely detest covering fashion. So <laughs> it's been horrifying whenever someone tries to put me around there. But, you know, so, and I think that that's what makes makes it so much more valuable to see so many women journalists who are my former colleagues, many of them now my friends, Megan Bangladesh doing really hard-hitting stories, reporting on crisis, reporting, you know, going, um, getting their hands dirty in no that matter because I know the struggle that they've been through. You know, I, I know that they must have gotten similar offers as well. Being in media puts you in a very, I would say, especially in current political environment in a difficult situation, right? Because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it mm-hmm. in, in the way you do your reporting and in the way you present stories and narratives. And what what I've seen in media, and I've talked about it on my previous episodes as well, there are a lot of stereotypes that that like um, are promoted. We see the especially with minorities. So, what are your thoughts on that, and how are you trying to change those narratives that exist about different minority groups? What are, what are you doing to change that? I am a big believer in breaking stereotypes, as cliched as that sounds. Um, When I first moved here in New York, when I moved to New York and I was in grad school, we were assigned to pick a beat in Brooklyn, anywhere in Brooklyn, any neighborhood. And I ended up in Crown Heights, which which has a very big Hasidic Jewish community. And I still hadn't figured out what beat I was going to pick. And I ended up in this neighborhood, clearly an outsider. And it hit me after, it's it's a realization I didn't even know I, I could have. It hit me that I'd never interacted with the Jewish community growing up in Bangladesh. And I realized that that's statistically impossible, that there's not a single Jewish person in Bangladesh. But then I realized that it's probably something that they've been made to hide um, because of clear safety uh, concerns, potential safety concerns. So... I decided that I'm in school and this is the one time, uh, one opportunity I'll get to report on the community while also unlearning stereotypes that had been instilled in me. So for me, the practice very much began with myself. And I've since reported on a lot of Muslim-Jewish peace relations just because I feel that that's a story that remains untold. And it needs to be told within Muslim communities as well as Jewish communities. I know it's been shared among my a lot of my Muslim friends and it's made them change a lot of their perspectives. I mean, I don't know if it's how much of it has made them change their perspectives, but I've definitely received a lot of positive feedback, a lot of feedback of people saying, here's a perspective that I had no idea about. Because I think specifically for Muslim and Jewish relations, people are so used to the war narrative, which exists and it needs to be told. And at the same time, these stories ought to be told as well. So to that point, what were some of the stereotypes that you grew up with and, and specifically with regards to Jews? That's the other thing. It, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that there were negative stereotypes that was built into me. It was more like they just weren't present. It was the other end, which is that I just not... I remember just standing in Kronos and being like, how did I not... Because... We, we pride ourselves over being a secular country. So we have a very big Hindu community, even though, you know, minority rights are an issue in the country. We have a very big Hindu community. There is there's a Shia Muslim community. There's a Christian community. There's a Buddhist community. So the Jewish community had just been invisible. And, and you're life. referring to uh, communities in Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, yeah. So th- it was just someone that, it was just something that I, because I hadn't interacted with, it hadn't even crossed my mind. Which is what made me decide that this is something I wanted to cover while also learning about the community. 
And given the current political situation in the US, uh, you live in New York now. And has it impacted you? And in what ways? I think on a very personal level, it's a very regular, it's like constantly stressful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you wake up every morning and you just know that there could be something or the other that might potentially affect affect you. And I think definitely in terms in journalism, it's it's given me a space to share a lot of these concerns and a lot of these stories. So it's held to me as a journalist, but I, as an immigrant, or even as an immigrant who reports a lot on hate speech crime. So a lot of the stories I end up doing are about, as you know, that this year there's been a lot of reporting just across the country of cops being called on black people or or just just a lot of hate speech you know like people spewing stuff on the train or or that lawyer in Manhattan who's who's just mad people were speaking Spanish apparently that's not okay anyway um so a lot of my reporting for a greater part of the year has been transcribing a lot of those a lot of those videos and that can be very after a point that can be very scary just to realize that I could be the next person. I could be on a train and someone would just, all it takes is like one slight push, which happens a lot on the New York subway. It's a crowded subway. So to reveal, I think to constantly report on it or like to constantly transcribe it and to constantly transcribe, just hearing the voice of the people who are making the attacks and you can hear the hatred in their voice. And that's very scary because there can be a lot of discussion on the media, in the media about the right side and the left side, but it doesn't change the fact that there's someone who feels so passionately about your presence next to them. And I don't know, just as a thought, that's a, that, that concerns me and that scares me. What would you say to people like that? I would really invite them for a conversation. I know that's not a popular opinion. In my experience, even when someone's vehemently being against my point, I, I've had a few opportunities to invite them for a conversation or at least to be able to explain that I don't agree with you and you don't have to agree with me. That's all right. And you don't even have to understand where I am, but, but you can try to understand where I'm coming from. And I think that's, that's essentially the difference is empathy, which is just trying to understand where, where the other person might be coming from. And I think a lot of that can happen just with one question. All you have to do is, before making a judgment, ask a question. That's a lot of how my conversations with my family were when we grew up. And, you know, we have a lot of disagreements. My family is my family's, uh, very religious and very liberal at the same time. And I have a very difficult time explaining that to people. But they are. And one of the best things that my parents did was foster a culture of asking questions before making a judgment. That's how I've been able to carry that on in my journalism as well. So Samira, you just mentioned that you've, you've done that with a couple of people. What was the experience like? And what was the conversation like? And do you think in the end, the person that you were having this conversation with had a change of heart or did you see any difference? So this was very recently. I, I wrote an article which a lot of people didn't agree with. And a lot of people were, you know, they sent me messages, being angry. A couple of them, wrote from their heart that I think that the, what you what do you think is something absolutely it's so different from how I feel I feel beautiful about this and I wrote back an equally nice email because I really appreciated the fact that this person was probably really hard they weren't even angry they were hurt that I wrote this thing they don't even know who I am but they took the time 
to write to me to let me know in a very polite and decent way how they felt. And I respect that. And I remember when I wrote back to them, I I added a disclaimer at the end. And I said, I didn't mean for this to be an article hating on on this sentiment. And I'm really glad you wrote to me. And he he said, I I I don't think you were hating on the sentiment. I just, but I but I did think it was worth the conversation. I don't think it changed their mind, and I don't intend to. My point is not to make you change your perspective entirely about something, because I think we'd be we might be living in a terrifying world <laughs> if we all did that. But I but it's just to get you to think and consider that my experience is different from yours. That's such a good point that you raised because. I truly believe that one of the mistakes that we as immigrants make is that we live in our own bubbles and our own silos and we don't reach out. And sometimes this hatred and bigotry just stems from not knowing the other person. I'm sure those who are hating on Latinos or Muslims or or Jews or, or Blacks don't even know them that well or have not met them or spent time with them. And it's interesting uh, what you said about uh, people hating uh, on you and all. I like my podcast. It's only like what two months old, and I have already been receiving some crazy stuff, like people hating on me and not wanting this like anywhere in their feed on Facebook and stuff. So I think it's it's so important to have these conversations and to be in this space where we can have them. If yeah. I may just add to that, I think the best response to anger is a question. If you respond to anger with further anger, which is the most natural thing to do, and it's a it's a very normal, I'm not judging that act. I'm just saying I've realized that when someone's really angry and you write to them and you or however you're interacting and you ask a question, it just makes them pause for a while. And also they expect you to be angry back. So and that, I think people expect you to be angry back because that's easier for them to put you in the narrative that they already have of you, right? But when you're asking them a question that's making them reflect, it's a, it's a totally game changer. And I also want to acknowledge that not everyone always has the emotional energy to do that because it is very exhausting to have to constantly deal with this. So I acknowledge that as well. But I'm trying to practice it for as long as I can. Yeah, for me, I... I couldn't reach out. Like yeah. I completely, I decided to ignore those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was the right thing because the way what you're describing is I could have reached out, said something nice or even asked a que- question, as you said, and seen why they're so angry that I'm doing a podcast on immigrants, right? Sure. I think, I mean, if I may just add add a few cents over that. Again, it's it really matters from situation to situation. If I were running something that was on a regular basis, there are higher risks to doing that. And, you know, you're doing this amazing work and you're, you're, putting, you're putting your name out there. And there are potential risks to that, right? And as I said, it's exhausting to have to do it on a regular basis. I, I'm talking about this one time that I did it, but I don't know. <laughs> so what are your future plans? To write a book. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. What, what kind of book have you decided? Or um, Definitely my poetry collection. Yeah, um, we have to talk about that. So you yes. are a poet as well. And so tell us a little bit about your poetry, what kind of poetry, what language and why poetry? So I started writing poetry just as a Tumblr blog, which I'm realizing a lot of poets actually start there. <laughs> um, I Now I write a lot about, you know, my journey as a woman, a lot of immigrant issues. I actually write a fair bit of poetry now that are inspired by the reporting that I do, because most of the reporting... 
you know, there's only a certain amount of words that you can write. There are only, there, at times there'll be certain details that'll get taken out. And justifiably, I, I respect my editor's work, but I think I also you use the space for po- in the poetry space to sort of write about the things I don't get to write about in journalism on the same topics, right? And so it can be about being an immigrant or being, uh, you know, a survivor of sexual violence, uh, which is also something I've reported on. And I've I've been trained, I've been training in poetry in the last two years since I've been here. I've been more intentional about it. I, before this, it was kind of a side thing that I just wrote for my blog. But now I'm, you know, attending workshops and sending to publications as well. If you were to describe America in one word, given all that's been going on, how would you describe it? A witness. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's actually a good one. And no one has, so far, none of my guests have used this word. Can you elaborate on it? Sure. I, I think there are a lot of right and there are a lot of wrong uh, interpretations and narratives of what's going on in the world. But America does stand as a superpower in the world right now. Everything that it does, at least as a Bangladeshi, I know that there are ripple effects there. I know there are ripple effects when when we don't have support. Uh, I know that there are ripple effects when we do have support. That's why I say that it's a it's a witness, is because I think it's that's a one role that America has played, whether being right or being wrong throughout the wars that we talk about throughout throughout the history as uh, as I know it. So, and if you could change one thing about America, what would that be? Bullying. And I see it. I, I, I didn't attend like middle school here or high school here, but it's something that you, as an issue, it's just something you can't escape because you, you read on it, you, you hear a lot about it. And it's not that it doesn't exist in other countries, but I see how, how it permeates other spaces like social media and like just the amount of harassment that can happen. Um, I think I think there's a lot of education there. But isn't that something that's happening all over the world because of just sheer presence of people on on social media? I think it's it's much easier to be a bully and hide behind your Twitter uh, accounts or your Facebook accounts and just be that person, but that mean person. You don't have to confront someone and see how it impacts them. Absolutely. And that's since the advent of social media. But I think if I ever have to imagine, whenever I think of cyberbullying, I think of the whole world. Whenever I think of a person who's person who's bullying, I think about Mean Girls. Like, imagine that movie. It's a great movie. I love watching it. <laughs> but there are so many movies like that where it's romanticized or it's fetish. You know, it's made, made to, it's passed off as as part of comedy. And I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. You know, when I first watched Mean Girls, I was I was a little girl <laughs> and I was in Bangladesh. I was watching it with my friends and I obviously didn't understand like a lot of, a lot of these layers. But, but the more I grew up and it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of like comfort movie that we all watch from time to time. You really realize how much the judgment, the looking down on someone else and like talking behind their back is promoted and then you hear a lot of stories about these bullings in school I've seen it in a, a lot in a lot of a lot of like tv shows or movies in pop culture and that only shows how how prevalent it is and I think that then it goes back to the same discussion about what responsibility does media have like 
again, if if they are uh, somehow promoting a narrative that that can be harmful to other people, um, that's where media has to do some introspection, I guess, and see what what kind of stuff they are putting out there. Um, and, and that's extremely important too. And if you could change one misconception about immigrants, what would that be? And when I say immigrants, it's like all immigrants. You could be specific about Bangladeshi immigrants and then move on to like immigrants in general. I think immigrants in general and Bangladeshi immigrants whatever, would be that your accent doesn't make you weaker in the conversation. I think People are talking about it more now, but it's definitely been in my experience. And I've seen a lot of friends around me who, and it, it's so, it's so silent, the discrimination and the prejudice against accents. It's so silent, but it exists the moment you hear that the other person has an accent. And this is very specifically for accents of the Hispanic community or people from countries in Africa or people from Asia or Eastern Europe, you know, there, there's a class, uh, there's a hierarchy even for accents here, which I've experienced in my interactions. And I think people need to know that just because you speak with an accent doesn't mean that you don't know more than them. And accents, they add value to who you are. And they, they are an expression or manifestation of the fact that you probably know more than one language. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you ha- you come from a culture that's enriched with so many other things. So you're absolutely right. So moving on, we've, we've talked about some really serious stuff. <laughs> so now we'll just, you know, lighten the mood a bit. We'll move on to my rapid fire round. Yay. <laughs> and that's like fun questions. Doing poetry or writing articles? Doing poetry. Okay, if you could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Dal. Oh, I- <laughs> Are you surprised? I'm not, actually. <laughs> if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? A book, my mother's letters, and flowers. Hmm. Nothing to, like, save you. <laughs> I just realized I would probably die the first day. Oh, well. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. Wow. Skydiving, going to this town in Morocco, which is called a blue town, writing my book. And if you could have any superpower, what would you want? To be invisible. Really? Yeah. Why? I love to disappear once in a while. It gets a lot. (laughs) Your biggest failure so far? Not being able to tell a story, right? Mm. Of a survivor of violence. And your biggest achievement? Oh, wow. When one of my sources wrote to me after I finished reporting on them, and this is in the Jewish community that I was reporting for, she said, I, you changed my views about a lot of things. She was a part of the Orthodox community. She is a part of the Orthodox community. And she said, you really taught me that throughout that when you talk to someone without judgment and just listen to them, it can, me- it can mean a world of difference. Wow. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Your willpower is more important than anything else. Yeah. Describe yourself in three words. Looking for food. (laughs) (laughs) Your idea of a vacation? Somewhere in a small hill town, just disconnected, absolutely disconnected from the world with a book and some good coffee. Do you think you can survive in like this day and age 
for more than one day like that? I have actually tried. So ever since I was, when I was in boarding school, we used to travel around and, you know, smartphone, smartphones weren't around then. But that's when I started this practice where I would be absolutely disconnected. My parents hate it. They're, they're <laughs> I'm like, sure, yeah. They, they, they're like, we love your freedom, but just let us know you're fine. I've definitely tried. I will say that since I became a freelance journalist, it's become impossible. I will have to connect at some point during the day just to see, you know, if an editor has commissioned a story or wants an update because you can't, you you can't miss that. So, yeah. Uh, your favorite, all-time favorite movie? Notting Hill. Best Bengali restaurant in NYC? Hard Bazaar. This one I know by heart. Where is this? It's in Jackson Heights. And you and said they, it's Hot Bazaar. Hot Bazaar. I have to yes. go and try this. You must. And they have the best. Um, it's called Kalobuna. It's a dried beef. Yeah. Everyone around me just knows that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and favorite emoji? Favorite emoji? Uh, the, the as a matter of fact, hand <laughs> on your side. I don't know. I'm showing it. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Coffee. Always. So you're from, like, again, I am stereotyping now. Please. But <laughs> I would have thought that, like... I'm from Pakistan. So right. for me, tea is the most important is life. thing. Yeah. Is life, right? But what is it like in Bangladesh? Is it tea or coffee? It's tea. It it's is tea, tea, right? Yeah. And they have, we don't really have great coffee there. <laughs> that's, that's what I would have assumed. In my yeah. four years after I went back from college and before I came back, that's one of the things I miss the most is that I just want to be able to go somewhere and get a cup of just regular black coffee. <laughs> Home yeah. is? My mother's scent. Ah, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Samira, for sharing your story. It was so interesting. And we wish you the best of luck for all your future endeavors. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun sharing my story and I'm so excited about this project. So I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today and those who have supported us. And if you like what you hear, please share it with like-minded people. And if you have a story to tell or any new ideas, please contact us at our website. It's www.thealienchroniclespod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien. And you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 